Coming up in this episode. What I normally recommend for people if you are looking for efficiency, which if you, I'm sure a good number of your people are biohackers by nature and that kind of stuff, you want efficiency. If you do one set of a movement to muscular failure, you will provide adequate stimulus, provided that over time, you still consider progressive overload. Because yeah. what happens is if you just go, oh, man, I'm failing every day, I'm failing every day, that doesn't mean, that, that means that you recruit all the available muscle fibers, that's good. But if you don't get stronger over time, or if you're not getting extra reps or time under tension over time, you still won't adapt. Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health Via Modern Nutrition. All right. Really excited to have Jerry Teixeira on the HVMN Podcast. And it's always really special to have the guests in-house, in the studio, have a real live dialogue and conversation. It's really cool to see like the energy of the person. So welcome to San Francisco. Welcome to the program. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We popped up on each other's radars for the last few months, and I really saw you as a functional movement calisthenics expert, but tracking your comments, your content, and, and where you're focused on, it really seems to be looking at perhaps movement and training as a lever into health span and longevity. And I think that's like an interesting crossover on interest. And, and correct me if I'm mischaracterizing your trajectory, but the way I think about it is I very much came into having high interest in physical performance, calisthenics, body weight training from all the way from the initial spark on cognitive performance. And there's like a long journey of going from cognitive performance to intermittent fasting, to ketogenic diets, to metabolic health. Curious to get your thoughts of how you got interested in the space of longevity. You know, what brought you initially to calisthenics, body weight training, um, and then your broader interest into longevity and health span? What was your tra trajectory there? Initially, I think that like most people, you know that um, physical training or, or exercise just in general has health benefits. Like we know it's good for us, right? Outside of that, there's the narcissistic, I'm going to look better, I'm going to lose body fat or, or whatever. There's various motivations for why people begin an exercise regimen, right? Some, so, And I don't criticize anyone's motivations because I think that's fine. If you're doing it because you want to look better, awesome. Who am I to tell you that your goal is not worthy, right? Yep. I see sometimes people on, on social media criticizing other people because they're, they're using like vanity as their driver. And so the thing I think is that people have different goals and we should acknowledge that that's okay, right? Because if what gets you started is looking better as an, a side effect of that, you're going to be healthier. You're going to reap all these other benefits no matter why you started. Um, but I definitely view, <clears throat> and, and it happened for me, I used to eat standard American diet, started going to the gym and once you start investing time into physical activity, um, I think that is that uh, keystone habit. Like I think Charles Duhigg from, from Power of Habit calls it a keystone habit. And I think it can come, like you're mentioning, it can come from addressing diet first. You're interested, maybe you're um, a busy professional and you want better performance, you know, with work or whatever it happens to be. So you start eating better. You're interested in longevity. You start going down the rabbit hole of how diet affects longevity. And you can't go very far without stumbling across the fact that movement and physical activity also affect longevity. So exactly. I, and there's actually a kind of a pushback in a low carb community of people that are like just 
super resistant to physical activity. You know, they take the stance that I'm getting everything I need from carnivore or from keto or whatever low carb diet. And I will acknowledge there's lots of metabolic pathways that are and lots of um, epigenetics. All these things are impacted from the way you eat. So I do think if your diet's on point, you probably don't need exercise as bad as somebody whose diet's not on point. I mean, I acknowledge that you're activating some common pathways. Yeah. But I also think that why would you want to activate it halfway or why would you want to get whatever percentage? And I, we can't really quantify what that is. But to me, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm yielding these benefits from diet, but I can compound that and get even better benefits by adding physical activity. Yeah, I, I think it would be helpful and elucidating to dive into some of these pathways because talking to academics and researchers active in the space, people talk about exercise in a pill, right? Like yeah. what compounds or what diets and interventions trigger some of these pathways. So pathways like AMPK, right? right? So exercise uh, increases AMPK, but also diet, like ketogenic diet also triggers AMPK. But right. I think the relative potency of the dose of exercise versus ketogenic diet, that's where it's interesting to get the full response. NAD uh, and the pathways to replenish NAD, I think NAD is a big topic around the NAD pool and the NAD ratios associated with aging and exercise is one of the most studied pathways to right. replenish NAD pool. So like, it's not a competition around, do I just eat a keto diet and not exercise or just exercise and not care about my diet? It's like, why not do everything that works and, right. <laughs> and maximize your benefit here? Yeah. And I, th I think that's the, the overarching theme is that looking at ancestral movement, just as, as a species, I, I think you have the naturalistic fallacy. I'm not one of these people that thinks like, I, I want to do everything 100% the way it was done 75,000 years ago. I'm the type of person where, and I'm 40, so I'm not old enough where I think I need to take any high risk anti-aging methods. Um, I'm trying to do the best that I can now to extend my health span and maintain optimal health span because I do think the technology is probably going fast enough that in my lifetime, I'll be able to jump on something pharmaceutically. I'm not anti-pharmaceutical by any means. I'm not anti, I'm not anti any intervention. I just look at everything from a risk reward standpoint. And so I think that, and you, you can overexercise and we'll talk about that. But so I think that exercise is one of those things, just like diet is one of those things where it's almost all reward and little to no risk. Um, obviously you can do your diet wrong and potentially harm yourself, but, but you, but in general, um, I think those are the low hanging fruit. And, and like you mentioned sleep where you can look back and say, okay, what were we doing you know, 75,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, j just for a framework. It doesn't mean you're going to do that, but, but just, I think evolution is the strongest force we've ever seen biologically. And so it's like, what, what have we, what, what is evolution telling us? And, you know, one of the reasons I think sleep's really important, not that I'm a sleep expert. And so I can keep my, my whole attitude towards sleep really brief. Um, if you're in an environment conducive to sleep, however long you sleep for before you wake up naturally is probably the right amount of sleep for you. Right. I was, nerding out, reading into all the sleep studies. And I started stressing myself out. I wake up in the middle of the night and I would see it's like two in the morning and I'd be mad that I woke up at 2 a.m. I'm like, oh, my sleep's all, you know. And I realized I was getting worse quality sleep when I worried about it. And so I just simplified and I was telling actually, um, Zeal, that's why I haven't gotten an aura ring yet. Only because it's like, okay, I'm sleeping well and I wake up naturally at about seven hours with no alarm clock. Yep. So what, why would I have some arbitrary like, oh, I better get that eight hours? Yeah, no, we, we yeah, yeah, the aura ring is interesting because we had them on and it was interesting to understand their data. But I think just to be fair, um, 
there's also been post studies where the accuracy is 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 questionable. Are you really measuring the different stages of sleep? Is just HRV heart rate data gonna actually match a proper sleep study? And there was like some discrepancy in terms of the variance on that data. So right. even from that level, are you actually measuring noise? Are you actually measuring proper sleep? And is it meaningful given that the signal to noise ratio is so high on on a consumer device? And then what is the actual insight? So yeah, I, I I've been, you know, I I like wearing it, but sometimes it's just if you have good sleep habits, work like you're not changing it. Like yeah. it, once you have your pattern, right? Like and similar to me for a ketogenic diet, once I have my diet locked in, I don't need to be tracking my blood ketones and blood glucose every single day because if I have a sense of that trajectory. Well, like I know I'm going to be 0.5 if I've been fasting for 16 hours, right? Right. And the so, same thing with, yeah. I have a precision extra and I've tested yeah. my, my ketones extensively. I think that as technology continues to get better, it, it'll probably be to a point where maybe it's way down the road, but one day you've got a ring that's reading blood glucose and ketones and everything else. Like, yeah, that's that would be my dream. I think that makes sense. Like, Yeah, it, it's awesome. I'm all about that. Um, but like today, if I, if I had the aura ring and I got sleep information and I looked at it, like what? I can't get my room darker. Like I can't do anything else. So what matter? What's it matter? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's it. That's what I call data porn. Where it's like nice to have pretty graphs, but at a certain point, like if you don't have interventions to correct the data, then it's 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 extra information that's not applicable. Yeah, and I'm just worried it'll stress me out, and I'll start sleeping worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a fair point. So, what, what's your background? How did you get so passionate about the space? I was in the Marine Corps out of high school. Um, for four years. And so my, my job um, in the Marine Corps was nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. Huh. And so it was a, a science-based field. And um, But once I, once I got out of the military, I kind of got away from that and uh, got into like, I, I didn't want to make minimum wage while I went to college. And so I was like selling cars and then I got into like real estate finance. And so I kind of just got away from the whole science, which was always really fascinating. I enjoyed it, you know, but real life happens. I started having kids. And pay the bills. Got to, yeah, I got to pay the bills. We all understand. And so I was just going to the gym and I, I wasn't uh, like very knowledgeable, I would say, as far as like training. Um, I would just buy like men's fitness, health magazines. You know, you're learning the, the mainstream advice. And in my early 20s, Something I've learned as I've gotten older is like youth can cover a multitude of sins dietarily. And one of the things I, I get a lot <clears throat> or I, I notice a lot in social media, too, is I, I see people that are young and they have a certain view about everything and like just even health and wellness. And I'm like, yeah, come back when you're 40 and tell me how you, you know. It's funny because I feel like, you know, hitting 30 and going to 31, I feel like I'm at the threshold where I still remember what it's like to have that youthful arrogance. And, all, and and also feeling having some battle scars and wisdom to realize, hey, like. Well, yeah, you. That's that's okay. So basically, I was doing the traditional gym thing. Yeah. And my wife got pregnant um, with our our first kid. I was twenty six or twenty seven, I think. And uh, I was never overweight. And so she got pregnant, and then just I I I got fat. In all honesty, I went from like hundred and sixty five pounds ish, um, all the way up to almost two twenty, in about a year and a half. I came quickly, and but because I was working out. Um, and, you know, three, four days a week in my mind, I'm thinking, and I'm getting stronger, but I'm also getting way fatter. I was gaining a lot of fat per pound of muscle, you know, Yeah. but in my mind, I think we all have a tendency to downplay our, our faults or whatever. And so I'm in my mind thinking, yeah, I'm just putting on size. I'm just bulking, you know? Yeah. And because I was always a little guy, 
I mean, I have small wrists, small ankles, you know, I was always a little guy. So I was really fixated on when I went to the gym, like I want to gain weight, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and in your twenties, no one's thinking about longevity in their twenties. If you are, you're way ahead of the game, you know? Yeah. And well, but, but once I started gaining all this weight, um, my wife and I went to the beach and we took some pictures and she was telling me kind of nicely, like, Hey, you're, you're getting fat, you know, for a long time. And I just disregarded it. But when I saw those pictures, it just hit me that I was like, yeah, 18 inch neck, you know, and just. I was almost, a, I would have had to go to a 40 inch jeans and I'm not that tall. So, you know, f five, eight. And, um, so that was like what made me realize, okay, I've got to lose weight. And so I did it the six meals a day, you know, this is 2008 or so I did six meals a day. It was like plain oatmeal and egg whites and chicken and rice. It was the traditional and broccoli, right? The bodybuilder diet or whatever. It's what all the magazines said you need to do. And so I'm doing this and everything's being eaten out of Tupperwares and everything's prepping food two days, three days in advance. So it, it was like a second job. Um, and I sustained it for a while. So you went all in, just followed instructions, yeah, counted calories, counted portion uh, yeah, size. Yeah, I tracked everything, boom. weighed everything, measured everything. Um, and I, I did lose weight. I got down to like 195 or something like that. Yep. And there was a, a guy who passed away who was a trainer and he had been talking about the warrior diet and so I looked it up and saw the book by Ori Hoffmichler. So I ordered it. And when I read it, it was like a light bulb went off because I was getting to a point where the, that type of food prep and meal, it, it, it's not, for multiple reasons for me, it was not sustainable. Um, just because I, I don't want to eat three day old food, to be honest with you. It, it's like you, you can do it for a while or you can eat chicken and rice for a while. You can eat oatmeal and egg whites for a while, but, and some people maybe really dig that and they like it. And that's, that's cool. I think that there's different, um, sustainability is different for everybody. It's like you hear, Oh, ketogenic diet's not sustainable, but then you got people that have done it for 10 years. It is sustainable for some people, just not for all people. Right. And so for me, I knew, okay, this isn't sustainable for me. And the food just wasn't like satiety. I mean, I would get full cause I'd eat huge chicken breasts with rice, but, it, but there was no enjoyment in the food. Right. Yep. And I know some people will, will say like, well, food's just fuel. But I think for multiple reasons, that's not, not accurate. Like I'm only going to live once and I want to eat good food. I'm going to be honest. Right. It, it's one of those primal desires, like sex, food, sleep. Right. And I think to just willfully deprive yourself of enjoying your food it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Maybe if you're going to just eat bland something for the rest of your life, is that worth some extra? Yeah. 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 Quality. And it's like, maybe not for me, maybe it is for me. Right. Yeah. I think, and the, what I learned from, from this, so the, the warrior diet, I read the book, the light bulb went off and what, what light bulb I'm talking about is realizing that the way we do things today, even with all the technology and the science and stuff, the way we do things today and the way we live today is a very brief snapshot in our evolutionary history. Yes. And it's not how we evolved to live. And so it opened up my eyes to like, Hey, I, I don't think I need to hit six meals a day. I don't need to, you know, eat every three hours. I don't need to stoke the metabolic fire. And, but the thing was, that's what everybody, and I mean, just about everybody. And there's some, some researchers that were not in this camp, but very few back, you know, 10 years ago, it made me realize that like, how, how is everybody wrong? You know, um, but that's what started me reading into research and reading studies. And then, um, it's what kind of got me back into when I was in the Marine Corps, having a, a, a field where the training was very science-based, that the science right away captivated me. And I was like, man, I, I enjoy reading this stuff. It's really interesting, you know, and that's obviously it's an endless rabbit hole. Cause I think that one of the mistakes, like I kind of thought when I first started working out or whatever is physics is, is very set. 
like we know the laws of physics are to an extent, right? I mean, everything there, there's quantum and all, you know, we don't get into that rabbit hole, but, but for the most part, like we can, we've got spaceships leaving our yeah, solar like system. Yeah, like physics works, Einsteinian general relativity generally works. Yeah, right, right. It's, Refining, it's like literally getting down to like the one to the 10th of the 10th power accuracy. Right. And I think maybe this quantum mechanics can explain I guess like, yeah, like black holes and super small sizes and... Right. And maybe there's a unified theory eventually. That's all super interesting. Yeah. So, it, so it's, it's, it's fairly accurate. I would agree with you that basically our current models of general relativity and quantum mechanics describe with really, very, very high accuracy our observations of the universe. Right. And so I think most people think that biology is like that if they're not scientists, right? And I'm not a PhD researcher or anything, but... I think that's the common thing is we assume that we know way more about everything, including biology, that, than we actually do. <laughs> and yeah. so then when I started reading it, it's like, I, I think most people don't even realize how complicated a cell is. It's mind boggling. Yeah. Like it's absolutely mind boggling. It's the most interesting thing, you know? Yeah. And so when I started researching it, I was like, holy crap. This, like, so when I see people, I think they got it all figured out and have all the answers. I'm like, dude, immediately that ruins all credibility that. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of like the Dunning Kruger effect, or like this this graph where like a novice feels very small and doesn't know anything, and then they get like the first year of reading and they think they're a genius, yeah, and then yeah. they like learn more and they're like, oh man, I don't know anything for like a long period of time, and then you get wise for like we know some stuff, yeah, but like that. you're 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 not you're not super confident because everything is is very very complicated, yeah, and and every new discovery or every everything that's elucidated new oh just more questions come yes right but, but what dawned on me was like okay so you have the uh, the kind of i would say like ancestral model like so how are we how are we supposed to live in order to thrive or how did we evolve to live to thrive and then how can when you're looking at technology and what ways is technology benefiting our situation and then in what ways is technology like destroying our situation you know because when you look at um any animal model, for the most part, when you bring them into captivity, you know, their, their lifespan goes up because there's no predation. There's nothing killing them. Sure. But they're less healthy as far as a health span goes than the natural wild counterpart, right? And so I think it's useful to look at the science, but then I think it's also useful to remember what we evolved for and then kind of merge the two. And so when I, after I read The Warrior Diet and I was like, okay, this ancestral model makes sense to me, but you know, there's what's it called the naturalistic fallacy or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this makes sense to me. I'm not just going to assume that this is best. Right. And I see a lot of people do that too. Like, oh, this is, you know. So basically that's what started me down the, which changed how I looked at things. And so it also changed how I trained. At that point, I realized like, okay, I have lost some weight. Um, I'm going to try this intermittent fasting thing. But also as I'm reading that, I started realizing like they didn't have dumbbells 2000 years ago, you know. And thinking back, hearkening to my, my Marine Corps days, we didn't lift weights in boot camp, right? And everybody was lean and mean and all that. And it kind of just made me realize, I was like, man, I was in amazing shape then. Split a bunch of running, pull-ups, push-ups. It, it was just all body weight stuff, basic body weight stuff, nothing. Yeah. You know, you're not worried about progression or anything. You're just... Literally like a lot of pull-ups, push-ups and sit-ups yeah. and running, right? And they're not worried about longevity, right, in the military. So I'm not, that's not, you should go do what we did at boot camp. That when you're talking risk-reward, yeah, you're probably going to get injured, especially as you're older, right? You're 18-year-old yeah. kids. Um, but it made me realize I, I kind of, and there's this, I'm not going to lie, there's a certain romanticism about that, like, uh, minimalist training and kind of an ancestral approach to things. I think that it's, 
you know, people love warrior societies. They love all that kind of stuff. So I, so I, I do think it's, there's a draw to the warrior diet. There's a whole, there's a draw to that stuff. But I, I basically started going back to doing a lot of pull-ups, a lot of push-ups, a lot of dips, basically for the most part, almost stopped isolation movements altogether, which would be for people that aren't familiar, um, a compound multi-joint movement, a squat, a deadlift, a bench press, you're utilizing multiple, um, basically multiple groups of muscles to move a weight. And they are, if I, they're the better, in all honesty, they're the better type of movement because, you know, like if you picture a bicep curl, you're just basically um, elk flexion at the elbow, you're just curling and you're, you're isolating your bicep. But in the real world, that's not something you're going to do. That doesn't make it bad or worthless or anything like that. But when you do a pull-up, you are moving the bicep in the same way, but you're also engaging the musculature of the back and you're, you're, you're getting a more efficient training session. Right. And all the supporting muscles where, especially on like a curl machine where all the range of motion is perfectly with right. aligned with the machine. Like you're not even having support. You're really just pure isolation. Right. And what happens is that your, your core is completely disengaged. You're not using abdominal muscles for the most part. Um, I switched my training because I started thinking about, okay, what's more natural? What, what's again, looking through that evolutionary lens. The reason I didn't pursue calisthenics more um, at that point is that it's really humbling because I could go to the gym and I, I could bench press, um, you know, for my size, a fair amount of weight. I wasn't powerlifting. I'm not like, you know, that, that was never my, my sure. desire. So it's not like some massive bench press or anything, but I wasn't weak. You know, I could squat, you know, f for people who care like 405 at that time and stuff like that. So, so a respectable weight. Yeah, that's solid. But, um, what happened is I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this one arm push up. No, dude, I'm going to fall right on my face. And it seemed like such a big chasm from what I could do to what I saw those guys doing. Right. I was just like, I gave up immediately. I was like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> but I kept doing so. So, you know, like my pull training, my back training was still a lot of pull ups. I did a lot of dips and push ups and also still bench press. So I, I had started working in calisthenics. Um, I at the, around that time, I also started intermittent fasting and I pretty much doing the warrior diet. It was 20 and four. The only difference is it's not really true fasting because I, having read that book, I was doing like whey protein one scoop after I worked out in the morning and then fasting till dinner. So, so you it cheated was, with a little bit of pro, post-workout protein. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I think people get hung up on the minutia of things. So like sometimes people will be like, well, if I have a scoop of protein after I work out, I'm not fasting anymore, which is true. But if you do a hard training session in the morning and then you drink protein and you're fast till dinner, you are in a massive caloric deficit. Yep. You're energy restricted almost to the max. Yep. So I, I would argue that you're probably going to get almost the entirety of the benefit. N not the entirety. I understand there's nuance and there's differences, but majority of the benefit of fasting, you're still getting it. Yep. You know, because like you'll have a, a short insulin spike, a short mTOR spike, but that should be resolved quite quickly if you're metabolically healthy, right? You'll go back to baseline yeah, because um, you're such in a deficit. Right. And, and, and we can talk about that. Like when people ask me questions online, the first thing I ask is, well, what are you optimizing for? I can't, I can't tell you anything unless I know what, what, not I just what I, your That's goal. exactly like some, every time I, you know, talk, it's like, okay, we all have different genetic baselines and environmental baselines. You might have, a, we all have different goals. If you want to be Olympic powerlifter versus well, trying to live to 120, very, very different goals. Right. And therefore you have to have personalized protocols given your start position and your end goal state. Right. to actually make it make give people something tangible otherwise it's like yeah let's all uh study physics it's like well i don't i want to be an artist it's like okay like you wouldn't tell everyone to study physics right, right same exactly. thing with this and so um 
but that's what started me with intermittent fasting. And, and what happened is I, of course, eating one main meal a day, without doubt, I had a bigger caloric deficit than before. But what was freeing about it is I had tracked macros. I had weighed and measured everything up until that point. And I was like, people didn't do that until very recently in our history. So that can't be a requirement to get results. And I lost, I got down to 172 pounds, which is close to my current body fat levels fairly quickly in a few months. It it happened very fast. Um, And then from intermittent fasting, I ended up experimenting because it kind of goes hand in hand. I experimented with a keto diet. I did like two months, two and a half, maybe. Um, This was like 2010 or 11. And then I went from that initial keto experiment, which the thing is we knew less than I think just as a community than we do now. So it was like more nuts and seeds and things like that versus the second time around. I was more animal foods based. Um, but that was my first experimenting with, with ketosis. And then I stuck with intermittent fasting and but anywhere between a four hour window to eight to 10 hour windows, time restricted eating. I, I, so over the years since, cause again, this is around 2009 or 10, I just experimented throughout that time frame. And when I first really started digging into trying to dig more into ketosis and, and was around 2015, I think I ran across Dom D'Agostino. I don't remember where. And then a short while after he went on Tim Ferriss, I think, and it really started to catch on. And yeah, it got really big. Yeah. I knew that fasting was a form of caloric restriction and that caloric restriction extended lifespan in just about every model tested. So I, I, so, so you basically look at it like, okay, being chronically caloric restricted is not enjoyable. And the reason is because if you cut your calories 10%, or if you cut your calories 20%, you're, there's going to be a benefit. There's, there's going to be a health benefit of getting you into a net catabolic state, right? As, as an organism, you're going to be recycling tissues. You're going to be doing those things that you're not doing to the same degree when you're in a net anabolic state. Um, but when I started researching ketosis and, and, you know, production of ketones and beta hydroxybutyrate, I started realizing that a ketogenic diet is not necessarily eating 5% of your calories from carbohydrates. Like a lot of people think, right? A ketogenic diet is any diet you eat that puts you in ketosis yeah, by my a, definition. That, which is, I think, a really subtle nuance that people, I think, fail to grasp because what does ketogenic mean? It means the body producing ketone bodies. Yeah, which is, I think, a very interesting like nuance because, again, I think you're exactly right. I think when people think of a keto diet, they think of 90% fat, cal- 80, 90% fat calories, 10, 20% protein, and as minimal carbs as possible, essentially, right? Different right. variations from that. But I, I think you're exactly right. There's a difference between being ketogenic in doing a fat bomb versus your body in a state of generating ketones. Right. And so... You know, that's, that's kind of what I started to realize. I was like, man, all this time I've been intermittent fasting and I, and I had tried keto, like I mentioned before, um, but all this time, some of the positive benefits without doubt, majority probably, so you have caloric restriction, but then you also have increased, it, it fundamentally changes the way your body's metabolism is working yep. to a degree. And so um, it's like, okay, I wonder what percentage of the health benefits I'm getting are from periods of caloric restriction independent of beta hydroxybutyrate levels. And so that was like really interesting to me. So I started researching. This is a a specifically interesting area of research for me as well, because 
then you add in the third curveball of exogenous ketones right. with like beta hydroxybutyrate infusions or, or, or you know a ketone ester and you are starting to see other longevity effects on just having BHB in the system alone. So I think that asks the broader question. I think this is now currently in, you know, I know different groups are working on ask, answering this question. And I would say that maybe the more aggressive speculative position would be it's primarily mediated through ketosis of why caloric restriction works, well, which would be interesting to test. Yeah, and, and so that's what was really interesting to me because I, and the reason, so for, just to get it out of the way, so I I've still eat very low carbohydrate. Um, I was carnivore for a time, which we can dig into why. Yeah. And I would say now I'm carnivore-ish. Um, but the reason that uh, I, because people will say, well, carbohydrates have potential performance benefit as an athlete. And so like, to be clear, I don't look at myself as an athlete. I'm in mean, a fit guy. I'm pretty strong. I, I do this type of training, <laughs> but I'm not optimizing for athletic performance. Like I'm not, nobody's paying me to be an athlete. Yeah. So I'm worried about longevity and, and wellness and health. Those are the things I care mo the most about. My, my goal in leveraging a low carbohydrate way of eating, whether I'm, even when it was carnivore or when it was intermittent fasting, whatever the case is, uh, is if I can get into a state where I'm producing ketones and I have beta hydroxybutyrate at a certain level, I can be calorically restricted a very small amount but I can have beta hydroxybutyrate levels indicative of someone that's deeply calorie restricted. And so, you know, there's, there's a, a study I read where they took individuals that were fasted and they took individuals on ketogenic ratios. So, you know, probably 20% protein and, you know, 5% carbohydrate or whatever, and the rest fat. Um, and the caloric restriction after 48 hours and they cut 40% of their calories. So if anybody's ever cut 40% of their calories, Brutal. you are hungry all the time. Yep. It's not fun. But what happened is that I think the 48 hour mark, they were at like 0.6 millimolar, even eating carbohydrate. Yep. And so that would still be considered a state of mild ketosis or light yeah. ketosis. After 48 hours in ketogenic ratios, the millimolar concentration of beta hydroxybutyrate is like twice as high. Yep. And so to me, I'm thinking, okay, I don't want to be in that deep of a calorically restricted state because I think in laboratory animals, like we hinted at earlier, it extends lifespan because they don't have to use physical prowess for anything. Right. right? They're in a safe little environment. But the health span impact, right? Like yeah. if you look at some of the, I, I, there's a group of people that literally follow caloric restriction yeah. and you see, and you, you see them give talks, they give like Ted talks and whatnot. And these people are very, very thin. I mean, I just like, just, there's no two, like, it's not a, a diss or anything. It's like, these are very, slim, thin, weak looking people. And right. it's not clear that that's at, like if you're at that level of muscle loss. Well, and the thing is, and, function. Um, and, and muscle is potentially a very potent longevity organ. I mean, when you're talking glucose disposal and all these yeah, other things. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and, and I definitely think there's, there's a curve. So like you look at bodybuilders and those guys may, they're not healthy. You know what I mean? Like, or it's definitely not a healthy Overweight. lifestyle. Yeah. 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 And, and for me, the idea was, you know, the top three and, and maybe four, depending on where the data is coming from, but you, you have, you know, heart disease, obviously, which is something you have to consider if you're interested in, in longevity, you have cancer, yeah. uh, but then violent trauma accidents is the next leading cause of death. Yeah. And so in my mind, I think, okay, I, if I'm physically active, if I'm exercising, if I'm eating well, um, I, I feel like I'm safeguarding myself against cancer and um, heart disease fairly well. And I know everybody's going to have a little differing opinion on what 
macronutrients will go into saying that you're eating well for that purpose. Yep. But after that, if I get in a car accident and I'm not like the biggest guy or whatever, but m muscle protects your inner organs. Like if you look at a, when Roosevelt got shot, they said like the only reason that he lived is because he was such a muscular guy. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I do think that to an extent for you, for your own frame, right? Not everybody's trying to be a bodybuilder, but having strong muscles and, and having dense muscles from a physical protection standpoint, should you need to use them can come in handy, yep. right? Increase your, your likelihood of surviving some kind of incident. Yep. Um, but you know, I look at it like car accidents or as you get older, um, falling and breaking a hip, hip fracture and things like that, catastrophic injury. There's some, some data I was looking at where if you get a hip fracture and retirees, basically they, within one year, 45% or 47%, I can't remember exactly, but like 47% didn't live longer than one year after fracturing a hip. Yeah. And it's because, so, so like you mentioned, when you're talking about the caloric restriction with optimal nutrition people that do, I think call it cron, right? They do it for a lifetime. Um, if you don't get cancer and you don't get heart disease, that's great. But if you fall and break your hip and you're already wayfish and frail, and you have do, no muscle mass. Do you mass. win, right? Like, does your all-cause all mortality improve? Yeah. That's the real question, right? Like, I don't care if I die because of cancer or heart disease or breaking a hip. I just want to maximize health and lifespan. Right. And if you minimize risk of cancer and, and heart attacks, but you die because you broke your hip, yeah. you're not winning. And, and then I think the other thing is, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure almost everyone will agree. So... When you're talking about maximal lifespan, we've not done a whole lot from, from a human. Maximal lifespan, roughly, it is what it is. And hopefully, we can live to see that upper end of maximum lifespan. But your health span, so whatever it is that you love doing today, if you're 40 or 50, I'm assuming you want to still do that when you're 90. Yep. And so for me, it's like, okay, quality of life and health span are really, really important. So like, you can't uncouple... So to me, taking the approach of like, I'm going to maximize longevity, but I'm not going to maximize health span is, is it, it doesn't make sense at all. You know, so it's yeah. what's the quality of life as you get into old age and your great, can you still pick up your great, great grandkids and throw them around and all that stuff? P people think like, oh, you must love working out. And I, I don't really. Uh, and I think that's you must like, I, I, I do. I mean, well, you, no, should, you should be apologetic about it. No, it was, but what happens is, um, I was getting burned out on the traditional lifting. And so kind of what got me to go all the way, because this is what we're bringing it back around to this, what got me to go all the way into calisthenics, progressive calisthenics and give up weights altogether was um, we had put my daughter in gymnastics when she was three. Mm -hmm. And at three years old, it's very basic recreational gymnastics, right? But she stuck with it. And year after year, she's getting older, she's getting older. And when she was nine, um, she was very well built. And she was a competitive athlete at this point. Like it, it gets real serious at a young age. Oh in yeah, for sure. And, um, but so having been exposed to that sport longer and watching the Olympics and seeing some high level competitions and things like that, I started seeing the conditioning of these athletes and they don't lift weights. Um, when they get to like NC2A level or when they get to the Olympic level, they do some basically like power and speed work with, with weights, but all their, their hypertrophy is essentially built with all calisthenics yeah if you look at gym, gymnasts they're the some of the most jacked humans right and so around i so i knew kind of intuitively okay and, and you see some guys online like i told you i was i was researching these guys that were more advanced into calisthenics yeah. you know um but before i always had that because i tried some of the more advanced stuff and it was super humbling and i and i wasn't good at all at it i just kept lifting and 
I, wife and I ended up having a second child. And so when she got pregnant, I knew from the first time around, yeah, I'm not going to the gym for a while. It's just not feasible. It's not realistic. And so I decided I was just going to work out at home. And that set me on the path of, okay, I'm going to train 100% at home. And if I'm going to do that, um, what methodology, what am, what am I going to do uh, to make sure that I am progressively overloading? And the reason that term, if, if anybody's not heard of it, anybody who's ever been a trainer, actually, I see some trainers not adhere to this. So hopefully anybody who's been a trainer will kind of understand this. This is the most um, fundamental governing principle of athletic training in my mind, period. Mm -hmm. And if it's the only thing you remember from the conversation, if it's the only thing you apply, you can get results for the rest of your life. And it goes back to evolution again. We are adaptive creatures. We're adaptive organisms. And so when it comes to physical training, whether you're a runner or you're lifting or whatever it is you're doing, you are going to start a program. And so one thing I see online a lot is like, I'm going to do 100 push-ups a day for the whole month of whatever, which is, which is cool. If that's what you want to do, you're going to do that. And you're, as you're doing this, the stimulus from the training is going to cause cellular adaptations to take place. And your body's over time, day after day, going to adapt to that stimulus. And at some point, those 100 push-ups are just going to then keep you at homeostasis, yep. right? Yeah, you're not going to make progress anymore. Yep. And so what you have to do is progressively overload the body. And in that way, the body will continue to adapt to the stimulus. And so that's where all of my content stemmed from is I was not good at this stuff, but I knew I wasn't going to lift anymore. I basically canceled my gym membership. And I looked at, looked at gymnasts, male gymnasts, and I looked at guys online. And there's a, there's a difference... Um, a lot of the guys online doing advanced calisthenics, they are like street workout guys. Yep. And a lot of the stuff they do from a risk reward standpoint is horrible. Um, and so I- It looks I, badass though. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the thing is, so some of it's like a lot of dancing around and yeah. spinning and stuff like that. I don't do any of that. Mine's solely <laughs> focused on um, like calisthenics or, or body weight strength training. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that gymnasts do is an iron cross, which is a extremely advanced. Yeah. But I looked at that and I decided, you know what, I, I want to do that. And like a full planche, if if you don't know what it is, you can Google a planche. And, and so I thought, I want to do that. So I wrote down these goals of, yeah. I want to do these things. Now, how do I get from this where I'm at, where I can't do much to that? And so that was over five years ago. And I'm still not at some of those things I can do. Some of the things I wrote out, I've like a front, full front lever, back lever, those I've got down, yeah. um, a, a side lever or human flag. So but I, I, I wrote out these goals and then I thought, okay, how am I going to get there? And so I read multiple books, blogs, online training programs, all this stuff. And what I found is um, because I was getting older at this point, I was like 36. Some of the stuff that I think a younger person that's 21, 22, most of these guys are young, right? Yeah. They take for granted a level of base athleticism and not just that, but flexibility and mobility yeah. that almost nobody has as they're getting older. Yeah. And so I had to go and advance incrementally in very small steps, for example, from like a standard push-up to get to a, a, a one-arm push-up with good form. I can't just go straight to a one-arm push-up. Like, how am I going to get from this to that? And the purpose for scaling the movements to make them harder, if, if you look at progressive overload is, if you go to the gym and you bench press and you can bench press your body weight, say you weigh 135 and you're bench pressing 135. Or, you, or the push-ups we were talking about earlier, the equivalent of a bench press. So let's say you're doing those 100 push-ups. Once you've adapted, at the gym, you just add more weight to the bar. So you add another five pounds, and now that increased the demand 
from the body, the body adapts and you build muscle. With calisthenics, you can't put weight on the bar. So I know that, okay, I, I can do, you know, 60, 70 pushups, whatever the number is. I need to make them harder because in order to overload, I have to increase either the intensity of the exercise I'm doing or I have to increase the volume. Yep. And this is probably the most important part of progressive overload is you, you can make your workout and make your training session um, stimulate adaptation by either adding intensity. And when, and when people talk intensity and in weight training, they're generally talking about the load or the weight that you use. So you can add weight or and make the exercise harder. So intensity, I would say, think in terms of making what you're doing harder. And then volume is going longer, basically, you know, in a nutshell. So yep. what happens is when you learn something new. So if you're listening to this and you decide, okay, I'm going to start training and you can do 15 pushups. The easiest way for you to progress will be to work on volume from pushups because week after week, you're probably like, man, I, I just added two pushups this week or added, you know, in a month you add four or five reps, but the body's very smart and it's going to adapt. And what's going to happen is you're going to get to a point where you'll have to do three months of pushups to add one rep. It's why in the Guinness book of records, nobody has a thousand rep set of pushups, right? So thinking back to progressively overloading, if you say, okay, I was adding reps easily and efficiently. I was adding reps. I was getting results, but now I'm not adding reps anymore. Like I'm kind of stuck. This is the point where you say, well, efficiency and adding volume is not working for me. Let me add intensity, yep. but you can't put weight on the bar. So now, okay, how do I make my pushups harder? And it can be in the form of elevating your feet to move more of the weight of the body to, to, to the chest or the pressing muscles. Yep. It can be from basically um, doing uneven pushups where one arm is elevated higher than the other. So maybe you put one arm on a ball and now more of your body weight shifted to the single pressing arm. Right. Or you do uh, like a clap pushup where you're popping off, you have a bigger impulse and a bigger intensity. Yeah, that'd be more like explosive style yeah. training, ballistic training. And so I have, um, and we talk about it later, but I have detailed progressions that will slowly take you in how to scale each movement in calisthenics to, to make it harder so you can continue to overload. Because for me as now with a family, with kids, my whole goal in training is to try to get what I would consider like, and when I say world-class, I'm not talking like we're elite athletes here, we're Olympic athletes, but to get a workout that rivals what I could get at any gym in 30 minutes at my house with almost no equipment and then take that and put it on YouTube so other people can do it if they want to do it. Um, and so that's the purpose for having the ability to scale intensity is that if you don't scale intensity and you're only scaling volume, it's going to take you forever to get a training right. session. You're going to do, I did 60 push-ups and 60 squat. You see what I mean? Right. So for yeah, me, it's just like, like, I'm in, like you never go above 135 on the bench press. You're just doing like 10, 20, 50 reps. And like, you just plateau out. You got to start adding intensity. It makes a lot of sense. Right. So that, so that's basically where it came from. And that's what, what made me confident that I could do it with all body weight was being exposed to gymnastics and my daughter being a gymnast. And yep. she still is that she's 13. She'll be 14 in um, February, but that sport and realizing like, Hey, they, the, like there's a movie with Anthony Hopkins called the edge. If anybody's ever seen it. And there's a line in that movie where he says what one man can do, another can do. And I know it's just a movie. It's not like it's, it's real, Yeah. but that always stuck with me that, you know, like the first person to break the four minute mile. And then all of a sudden all these people did it when yep. they thought it was impossible. Yep. So when I seen somebody else that I thought, okay, if they can do it, why, why can I, why can't I do it? Yep. I just have to make a plan. And so that's basically what got me into full, all, all body weight calisthenics. No, it's a super fascinating journey. I, there's definitely po like pockets there that we would definitely want to unpack. I think the nutrition discussion I thought was very interesting because how you talk about it reminds me of 
how I now think of macros and nutrition. There's like a, a trajectory that a lot of I see a lot of people go through when they start thinking about nutrition and diet for the first time, right? I would say that level zero is you don't think about it and you just kind of eat what your parents gave you and right. you kind of eat what mass advertising pushes to you. So it's just like, okay, basically you, you passively have a standard American diet, maybe some consumer packaged goods or fast foods, or if you grew up in a, like a, a, a more lucky, fortunate household, you had a lot of home-cooked, healthy, nice meals, right? There's some variation there. Um, and then people start getting into books and dogma around specific diets, specific protocols. I'm going to only eat this list. I'm going to count my calories. And then I, I think as you realize and, and understand the mechanism behind that, you realize that the time you eat, the calories you eat, the macros you eat are just levers on the overall metabolic goal of what nutrition is right and if you can vary the timing you're eating you vary the uh calories of what you're eating you vary the diet or the or the other macros of what you're eating you can get to the same outcome by playing with these three different levers in different ways so i think going back to your point which is you can be ketogenic while having carbohydrate consumption Right. I think people very much miss that in popular discussion. I think they're like, oh, you're eating too much carbs. You're not ketogenic. Well, it's like if you are doing a warrior diet or a one meal a day diet, you have very, very long intermittent fasting windows and you did a hard workout and you had some carbs, you will likely re replenish your glucose, dispose of that quite quickly and then dip back into ketosis. Yeah. Right. And I think that's like the point where I think people just are like so dogmatic around these are the rules. You miss the rules. Like, well, the rules were defined to help level one people or just just to start orienting th themselves around some basic frameworks. But I think as you understand that these are just merely frameworks behind underlying mechanisms, then you can actually start being thoughtful around what kind of set that you actually want to implement for your personal lifestyle. Yeah, and, and I think that um, it varies based on, like you talked about, your your own goals and what you want to optimize for. Yeah. So I think that when you look at the broad, the bigger picture, where you take a bird's eye view, um, life forms have certain things that are catalyzed by a state of either like feast or famine or, you know, catabolism, um, anabolism. So it's why caloric restriction works. So one of the things that I think it's, you know, people argue about Kiko and calories in, calories out. And in, in my opinion, for a lot of people, um, counting calories is not a sustainable option. It doesn't matter if it works. It doesn't, it honestly doesn't matter if it works because for, for a percentage of people, it's just not, it's not sustainable. It, it can't fit. work. Yeah. It, it doesn't fit for them. Right. Sure. And so I, I don't argue that against counting calories, if that's what you want to do, because having a net catabolic state for you as an organism is going to make certain things happen. Yep. And then the level of that net catabolic state is going to be dictated by the severity of energy restrictions. You, you can't be like pro intermittent fasting and all this stuff and then be like, oh, I don't believe in, in anabolism. Like some of the arguments I see, it's like that is contra it just contradicts itself, right? Yeah. I think that's where maybe that's like the, the stereotype of academics arguing over the blade of grass like the worst conflicts are between academics debating like the definition of a word and it's like look we need to get the definitions right but sometimes it's like there are very interesting data points behind the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis and obviously calories in calories out has some truth to it as well like you can't just eat seven thousand calories of fat not stimulate any insulin right. like that's not good either 
right? Yeah, and I think <laughs> so. It's just like obviously eating twenty five hundred calories of pure sugar, which might be good for calories in, calories out, but you're having crazy insulin response. Well, that's not is, good. There's there's like rationale for both models. Yeah, and everybody wants to distill things. I, I think we have to be careful not to because oh, humans want. I think we have this desire to overcomplicate everything, yeah. right? We really do, um, and so I, I I don't think. You want to overcomplicate a situation, but at the same time, you can't oversimplify a situation. For example, like okay, so net energy balance—you got your your calories expended versus the calories you consume. But a calorie is a calorie is technically a true term because four calories e- equals one gram of protein. Or you see what I mean? It's just a unit of measure. Yeah. But the food that you so like you, I think you touched on this, you have all these inputs and the type of exercise you do while all physical activity is correlated to human longevity. It's all good for you within reason. I mean, you can, you can overdo it, but, but basically it's all good for you. And from there, it's like, okay, as I change the input with various types of exercise, how does it change the response my body's providing? And it's the same with food. So, okay, now how do I change these macronutrient distribution, which if you, if you set your macros up, right, oh, you're making more beta hydroxybutyrate or you increase your protein. Maybe you're making a little less beta hydroxybutyrate at this point, but now maybe you have a stronger um, anti-catabolic effect. You're, you're building more muscle. There's different. So I, I don't like, well, a calorie is a calorie. Yeah, a, a gallon is a gallon. Tautology, yeah, but right? a gallon yeah. of what? A gallon of gas, a gallon of water. And so are we talking protein? Are we talking fats? And then there's so much nuance. There's There's not only one type of protein. So like there's, you have basically you know, different types of fats, different classes of different types of fatty acids, they affect the body differently. It gets so complicated and you have different micronutrition also. There's studies that show if you're micronutrient deficient, um, it can interfere with basically metabolism of fat and things like that. And if you think about it, vitamins and minerals are cofactors for cellular processes. So it's, it's not this simple little thing that everybody tries to dumb it down into like, you know, oh, just count your calories and you're good. Yeah. So that's why I think the, 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 the like the, the almost the overly academic debates are on which model wins is oversimplifying it, right? Yeah. It's it, and I think it's like there is roles to get a notion of calories as well as there's an I think a role and a notion around why the carbohydrate insulin model is very interesting as well. If you look at just what metabolism is, it's all the you know processes, chemistry. It's all the processes that govern keeping you alive, and all the different inputs that you have affect that chemistry set that you are. It's not just, and and while, yeah, there may be a, the overarching theme of either an energy deficit or energy excess makes a big difference downstream. But then within that, there's all these other things that make a difference downstream. A lot of nodes within that system. I think that's where as an engineer, you know, from a systems perspective, there's a lot of nodes, a lot of sub inputs to drive certain outputs. And, we're starting to unpack how pressing one lever might affect a number of other outputs. But right. I think we're just starting to unpack some of those questions. And then going back to one note, one notion around being caloric restricted, being kinogenic, the way I think about that, and I think might be a helpful model for a lot of people, is that if you are caloric restricted by 1,500 calories and your basal metabolic rate is like 2,500 calories, and essentially what you're doing is you're eating 1,000 calories of fat except for from external source, you're eating your own stores of fat for that extra 1,000 calories. Right. So in some sense, your macros actually look more ketogenic in another in, in some way. If you only eat 1,000 calories and maybe 30% of that is carbohydrate, but your basal metabolic rate is like 3,000 calories, and therefore you're eating 2,000 calories for internal fat reserve, 
maybe that kind of macro actually puts you in a ketogenic state, which right. from a, just a consumption of external food, it doesn't look keto, but your body is actually generating beta-hydroxybutyrate. So one of the things that I, I look at is um, if you want to make a hypothesis, if you say, okay, I, I want to do a ketogenic diet or I want to do whatever type of diet, you know, is there any, is there any data? And there's, all, there's scant human data, obviously, because this is all fairly new. Ketogenic diet's not new, but is, you know, in children, epilepsy and um, again, all the nuance. So if you look at one diet, regardless if it's ketogenic or not, if somebody eating good quality whole foods, is it a bunch of crap that so there's more than just a macronutrients yep. to to how something's going to affect you right um but at, so at ucsf i'm pretty sure it was they did a cyclic ketogenic diet and the cool thing is now we're getting these studies coming out that are animal model but they're lifespan studies yep. not just looking at the mechanism but what is the net benefit or whatever on on lifespan and health span and so what they found is that if my if my memory serves they got about a 13 percent increase in lifespan from a ketogenic diet in, in mice. And then when they did a cyclic ketogenic diet, so I think it was week on, week off. Yep. And when they did that, they got a 10% extension. Yeah. This, I believe is at the Buck Institute, which is yeah, up yeah, in yeah, Nevada. I think yep. And so the thing that's interesting about that is that whatever the potential benefit is to a human, it's not like you can't just extrapolate it, but whatever the potential benefit is to a human, number one, the, the mice lived healthy and they compared them to controls. They didn't, they had reduced occurrences of all these different diseases associated with aging. So it's like, I can look at that as a human and say, okay, I, I think I can do a long-term ketogenic diet or a cyclic ketogenic diet. Gets you a lot of the, a lot of the way there. And still allow you some flexibility. So, so for people who want to cycle carbs in and out, you can see by that study that there's at least a basis for you to think, okay, I'm still going to get a lot of these benefits. And then actually you look at, and these, these are like C. elegans and worms and, you know, smaller life forms, but direct beta hydroxybutyrate application and they're expends seeing lifespan. expends lifespan, yep. even without a caloric deficit. Yep. So to me, that kind of shows me that in my mind, I, I, I can eat for maintenance. I can just maintain my physique, which I'm happy with. I can maintain. And if I'm leveraging beta hydroxybutyrate, I could potentially have a better benefit than I would with standard caloric restriction. And at the absolute worst case, I'm no worse off. I think it, Everything I look at now as I'm getting older is risk reward from exercise selection to the type of training I do to the way I eat. Yeah. If, and, and one of the reasons I haven't messed with any pharmaceuticals for aging and metformin, anything like that is I just am not confident in the risk reward for a healthy, metabolically healthy person. Yeah. That was like a lot of the main concerns I've had with some of the folks who are really pumping metformin or rapamycin. The strongest results are on unhealthy population. Right. And the thing with... The thing with rapamycin, um, probably getting off on a tangent, but the thing with rapamycin that I find is, is interesting is that you have to look at mTOR and look at IGF-1 and realize that if you follow a calorically restricted diet of any type, so whether you're intermittent fasting or you're ketogenic or you're just traditional calorie counting, cron, yeah, it, it lowers mTOR and IGF-1. And there's actually human data. They noted that increased protein intake and dieting, and this is kind of common knowledge, but they were looking at a mechanism. So if you increase your protein intake, but stay within the confines of caloric restriction, that you you maintain lean tissue more efficiently, right? And th I think people know that intuitively, but they actually tested um, serum testosterone levels and they looked at IGF-1 and what they found is increasing the protein did not affect IGF-1 and it did not affect testosterone. So a lot of times I see people like dieting and, and they're going low protein and they're worried about IGF-1 and mTOR. Yeah. And 
the thing that I think people have to remember is that um, as as we age, you develop, and when I say you, I'm talking collective you, like as a society, right? We develop insulin resistance over time because of our, our lifestyles, and we develop IGF-1 resistance. And so the problem is, from what I've researched, and again, if, if you've got listeners that are PhDs in this field, you know, correct me or whatever. Debate it. Um, yeah. But, but what happens is you have resistance to where the the systemic levels of IGF-1 are elevated and they don't have a target, right? So like when you exercise, exercise actually lowers IGF-1. And when I first saw that, I'm like, wait, that doesn't make sense. You know, then I started looking into it and it makes sense from the standpoint of you have circulating IGF-1 in your, in your, in your body, right? So you have IGF-1 circulating and it's going to exert actions wherever you have receptors. But when you, when you exercise, you are basically selectively sensitizing mTOR within the tissues that you exercised. And that gives you a target for that IGF-1. Yep. So what happened, that's why IGF-1 is going down. Cause you say, where did it go? You essentially resensitize right. certain, some of these pathways. And it's one of the reasons why I think for people that are really interested in rapamycin and all that kind of stuff, um, that exercise is really important because if you're worried about mTOR, then exercise is a way to leverage it for its benefits because it's not all bad. Yeah. But exercise is a way to leverage it for its benefits and help reduce your IGF-1 levels. And then, of course, you know, you're going to eat protein-rich meals to help. With IGF-1, I look at it like, how do I use it for what it's good for without overdoing it, without overexpressing it? And so, you know, when it comes to protein intake, you see some people in the carnivore space, especially, and they're like 400 grams of protein a day. I, I don't know. I don't have the the ability to say that that in a human is going to be detrimental long-term, but that's grossly overeating protein in my mind, just because even at the higher end of protein overfeeding studies, you're far in excess of that. It's really just new science, new, new ground, right? Like I think on the other side, you would say that in these protein overfeeding studies, they weren't eating in, in a carnivore context. They weren't eating in a carb restricted right. context. Yeah. They still does had that, insulin. Does that change the game? Right. And it's like, huh, like, Fair point, right? Like maybe it is okay because you have no carbohydrate and, right. and then if you have a reduced insulin response, maybe that protein overfeeding is okay, yeah, right? No. That, that would steal me on the other side being like, hey, like, it, and, and it, like my position is really, it's like no one has actually studied this properly. Exactly. And so for me, I, because people Other ask than me- case studies and like anecdotes. Right. right. And so people ask me, well, how much protein do you eat? And I, I probably go between 150 to 175 grams a day on training days, which is roughly- 0.85 to one gram per pound of, of, you know, body weight. And, um, I don't think like going over that periodically is like a big deal for me, but like I said, it, everything I look at is just personal risk reward. And could I eat more protein than that? And I, I've actually done it. I mean, I've experimented with it. Um, but for me testing BHB levels, testing my blood, uh, as my protein goes up above that, my BHB levels go down um, to, to a larger extent. And the way I are kind you of eating in a keto, are you eating low, are you restricting carbohydrate? Yeah, that? I was okay. even, even in a carnivore, okay. even when I did okay. strict carnivore. And, and, but the thing is, um, I would still stay in a mild ketosis. It just wasn't as strong as protein went up. And so for me, looking at the available data, I look at it like, okay, if I'm already getting enough protein to address my activity level and help with recovery, facilitate recovery, if I'm getting enough protein and enough total food, the thing with fat is there's no micronutrient well, not no, but it's, you know, not going to, from a micronutrient perspective, I don't want to get all my calories from fat at the expense of inadequate micronutrition. So, so once I look at my, my foods that I'm eating, that I get adequate micronutrition and that I get enough protein after that, I would rather have the fat as the, my dietary energy than just throwing more protein on there. 
Um, as much as I love, you know, eating bacon and eggs or whatever, um, I just look at it like I, I, outside of additional micronutrients contained in more steak, for example, I'm getting more protein that I don't need. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just that I don't need it. And at the expense of, I, I can hypothesize that BHB has a stronger longevity benefit than more protein. So that's why, for, and again, I'm just hypothesizing yeah. if, if I happen to cook something that's really good, you know, and I eat extra protein, I'm not worried about it. I'm not scared yeah. um, that, it, cause I know that that's mTOR is a big topic and IGF one, I see it more and more frequently people yeah. talking about it. And so I, I just want to stress that physical training is probably the best proven tool. I mean, you can do protein restriction, um, but, and actually I would even say there, there was a recent uh, study that they did in, in rodents, of course, but they looked at caloric restriction and then they took protein restriction. And what they did is they restricted one group further in protein because it's known that protein restriction increased longevity in, in mice. Oh, sure. They took the calorically restricted mice and the protein restricted mice. And what they did is they matched total calories. And what they found is additional protein restriction in a calorie match state provided zero additional longevity benefit. And that's in mice who tend to get more cancer. And so, which is, I know what a lot of people are worried about with mTOR. Yeah. So based, based, that's just one study. I get it, but that's all we've got right now. Right? right. So looking at that, I can say, okay, well, it appears that as long as you are calorically restricted to the same level, yeah. a a whether it comes from protein or not, doesn't even matter. And then when I combine that with that human data that showed that getting additional protein helped preserve lean muscle tissue, but did not elevate IGF-1. Yep. It's like, I think you kind of have to put, just put that stuff together. Yeah. No, I think that's really fair. I mean, I think my personal implementation for myself is that I am not concerned with overfeeding on protein. One, it's, I mean, yeah, you got to be eating a lot of meat, to, to one. And then two, I, if you're eating relatively low carbohydrate, have a relatively low ambient insulin. Um, and if you do intermittent fasting, and exercise, like I'm not worried about the mTOR stimulus from leucine or amino acids or protein. Right. My concern is maybe over-recommending protein restriction for people that want to extend longevity and it backfiring. So I think most people probably don't have enough high-quality protein to maintain lean muscle tissue. Right. I, I think that's where I think it gets nuanced before people say, hey, uh, protein stimulates mTOR, mTOR is negatively associated with longevity. Therefore, we got to minimize mTOR. So therefore, we got to minimize protein. I'm worried that people will overthink about protein restriction unnecessarily. Right. And I, th and I think that's where, you know, as a safeguard, I guess you could call it on the one hand. So physical activity is not all, if you're very sedentary, even jogging is going to build muscle, right? A any physical activity, depending on your current conditioning level can build muscle. But at a certain point, you've got to dedicate once you've built a, like we talked about that ad adaptation, once that ad adaptation takes place, then you, you say, okay, well, if I'm concerned with longevity, strength is a strong correlate. What kind of strength training am I going to do? Um, and when you, when you add that in, I think that's a really good safeguard against potential of protein overfeeding. And if you do have any concerns in those areas, that's where exercise can come in and help mitigate. If there is any potential there that I think helps mitigate it where, if you're of the view that, well, my nutrition's dialed in, so I don't have to worry about exercise. That's one of the areas where I think that additional, so 
prevention of, you know, IGF-1 resistance and insulin resistance exercise compounds with right. proper diet. Yeah. Um, I think what people should be concerned about is overfeeding in general. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's like like protein overfeeding. It's like, well, yeah, you should be also be worried about fat overfeeding and, 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 and carbohydrate overfeeding. Right. And I think that's like probably the highest form lever. Like you want to match like caloric demand to output at, at some level. Right. And like I, if you're just like restricting protein and not thinking about anything else, that's probably not what you want to do. Like the body homeostatically is pretty metabolically flexible and can right. process different fuels. I think the problem with standard American diet is people are tend to way over consume calories and it's a mix of everything, right? It's overdoing fat, overdoing carbohydrate and likely overdoing protein. Yeah. And now it's, un now it's hard to unpack like what's worse. I am saying that like probably all of it is not good. Right. Like just reduce everything to, to appropriate levels. Yeah. And, and I think that one thing that was really interesting is I looked at some, some data from 1960s on and red meat consumption's actually gone down. Yeah. Uh, and total calories have gone up significantly. I think an 800 calorie swing. Yeah. So we are a nation of overconsumption period. Yeah. And the reason that I think that eat less, move more is like, I get the, the, the thought behind it. Yeah. Um, but I think the reason that it can be short-sighted is that uh, I was looking at, and I'll, I'll send you the study, I can't remember the guy's name, but they, they actually looked at hunter-gatherer societies, and I, I'm pretty sure it was the Maasai, not the Hadza, it was the Maasai, and they actually did respiratory measurements yep. to check their caloric expenditure yep. and their intake, and these people are walking miles a day, they're hunting animals, yep. they're, they're way more active than the average American. Yeah. But when they ran the, the, the tests, they found that they don't burn that many more calories huh. than the average person in the West. And they were like blown away. And I think it makes sense when you think in terms of just things that you observe. So somebody starts going to the gym, they get a gym membership and they go to the gym and they hop on the treadmill and they start pounding away and doing like an hour a day. And they I get, saw this they, for years. They got efficient at it. Yeah. Your, your body adapts to what you're doing. And, makes and sense. the thing is your body seeks homeostasis. So if you're 250 pounds and, and overweight, when you start to lose weight, your body right away, you got to realize how we evolved. So your, your machinery is thinking, hey, there's a famine, food is scarce. Yep. We can't do this forever. We're going to die, right? I mean, it, it starts to conserve. Yeah, that's an interesting area of science where like what's the notion of a set point, right? If your set point is impaired or diff, you know impacted where it's like we're very high, it's hard to lose weight. Right. Because so, your body yeah thinks it's in famine mode. So it's trying to hold on. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I think that approaching things cyclically or cyclically um is never beneficial. Lets, never lets you adapt yeah because yep if you if you think about just how from the very very beginning i don't know what the first life forms were but you know if you think about from a day and night split and then circadian rhythms and you look at um you know your mitochondria where they began as another basically bacteria or whatever the case is throughout all all of the biological kingdoms, you have things working cyclically. So you have net, you know, anabolism, catabolism, you have all these things. And so I, I think like for you to be a healthy, robust organism, certainly naturally we would have leveraged both or the available, you know what I mean? Yep. And so I think that where people run into, like they hit a wall and I, I've had people and I, and I get the default reply to this a lot of times is, well, they're just an idiot and don't know how to measure with a measuring spoon or a cup or whatever. They don't know how to track, count calories adequately. But when you look at the, the data that came from um, that anthropologist where they're using respiratory, like 
it's basically a, a portable metabolic chamber, the, you know, the closest thing you can get to measure carbon dioxide output and everything. Yeah. So the, they're, these people are not, and they're burning more calories than we are, but not significantly for their activity level. So I think that you realize that your, your caloric expenditure, things adapt somehow, even if you still expend the same amount of energy for your activity, then what the researcher was saying is that your body must be compensating elsewhere yeah. f- through metabolic processes. Something is happening. And so your, that's why I think that it, we've seen where dietary intervention works for fat loss. But just exercise and exercise and exercise is not as effective for fat loss. Where research shows that it is effective is for keeping weight off once you've lost it. And so I think that it, on, on the one side, there's a um, psychological – when you put in sweat, when you put in work – I think it reinforces making the right food choices. I think they, they, they go together. Yeah. Right. And so I think there's that element of the people who exercise and eat well, the reason that they tend to not fall off and do better long-term I th- is probably in a large part psychological. Sort of couches in the high performance world. The notion of periodization of both training and, and nutrition is, I would say getting increasingly popular. So I think right. the most advanced folks that either work with or speak to on the program, they talk about it in terms of a coaching training performance level. But I imagine that there'll be, I, th- I think this will be a more popular area of research to just formally study it in RCTs. I think there's something there, right? Like I think, yeah. and I think there's a one point that you mentioned the naturalistic fallacy. It's like, just because it came from nature doesn't mean it's necessarily good. Right. Nature does give us, it's a really great hypothesis generating tool right right? there's definitely interesting ideas of how we came to be and i think one of the things you know moving more towards movement exercise um and i think one of the things that we're talking about before going on 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 air was the notion around humans today basically living in a modern zoo like like we see those zoo animals i think we talked a little about zoo animals where they're like not healthy and it's not just like we think that look depressed it's literally you see orcas at SeaWorld with their fins like tilted right like great white sharks can't survive in a in container right or, or, or in, in, a, in a in a in a in a pool no one understands why you know it's like literally it's like unknown why they like literally don't live for over like 30 days or, or, or some fixed short period of time I think modernity civilization is accidentally unwittingly put all of ourselves into a zoo um it's we're in boxes and we go from this box to that box very little daylight very little sunlight not a lot of natural light or natural exposure to you know sort of the circadian rhythms that we've evolved with i don't know everyone kind of goes to the gym it's like all right like, we're gonna do some bench press right like maybe do some squats like like that's just like what american gym culture is right lots of, like, lots of bicep curls yeah you gotta do the curls but then you just realize that you know just working out like a couple times, one hour for a couple times a week is kind of a weird phenomenon. It's like it's feeding time at the zoo where like they splash some dead fish into the pool or here's like the dead antelope that we're going to feed or like, a, you know, some chicken that we're going to feed the lion. And that got me thinking on the lines of, you know, you know, wearing weight vests, like, you know, carrying 30 pounds on my, on my in, in a vest while I'm walking around doing errands or just carrying kettlebells around or trying to do like a little bit of push-ups or pull-ups in between a phone call or a, a, like right. an email. And, and I think 
that got me interested in calisthenics because yeah, like you can't be carrying around a squat rack or a bench press machine with you, but can you do, you know, you find like a pull-up bar, you can do like front levers, pull-ups, muscle-ups. There's all these things you can do in a pretty efficient time, given your experience, like you see really good results from that. And I think it's probably because we're just incorporating like movement in a normal way into our life where I think we're, Human society is now trying to reinstall exercise in these nice, digestible, consumerized packages of right. a one-hour spin class yeah. three times a week. And it's that might be a good enough solve to be a Band-Aid, but from a naturalistic or argument, or and maybe this could be should be studied, if you just actually incorporate movement throughout the day as opposed to just like a one-hour concentrated block, will you get a better outcome? And I think, I mean, my 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 opinion or my speculation or my hypothesis is like very clearly driving towards you'd want to be incorporating movement throughout your day. But before you answer that question, let's take a quick break. Hey everyone, I hope your 2020 is starting off strong. To celebrate the start of this new calendar year and this calendar decade, the team at HVMN is here to support your new or existing goals. We're offering 25% off HVMN's performance supplements all month long in January. Our four nootropic blends each target specific areas of the body and brain. Not getting enough omega-3 fatty acids in your diet? Try Arcado. It's a daily omega-3 health kit. Aiming to get better sleep this year? Try Yawn, our non-habit-forming sleep aid, and that could help make every night your best night's sleep. Sprint is our acute nootropic, and it's a great coffee alternative. And Rise, our mainstay nootropic, supports long-term cognitive resilience. Until January 31st, 2020, save 25% and stock up for the year ahead. Just click on the link in the description or visit www.hvmn.com pod. Now back to the program. Yeah, if you look at, you know, the Maasai or these these hunter-gatherer societies and yeah. everybody's ripped and fit, I mean, they're, they're not doing Olympic training, you know, they're, they're just going about living and living requires physical activity in their environment. And so, um, yeah, I definitely think that from a natural, if you're trying to do it as naturally as possible, you could do many movement spread throughout the day, whatever, you know, whatever that looks like for you. When you're looking at building muscle hypertrophy, if you did one session and you did, you know, let's say you're working oppressing movements that day or, or pulling movements or whatever it is that you do. If you spread it throughout the day or you do it in one session, the results should be the same. The, the muscle is going to adapt to the work. And when you look at one of the things that and some listeners may be familiar with this, that there's nuance to everything, right? Just like with diet, there's nuance to everything. And people get so lost in the weeds arguing about like, this is the best, this is the best, uh, you know, split for, um, hypertrophy or strength. And this is the best split for hypertrophy or strength. And the thing is, as long as you abide by progressive overload, you will build strength, right? And you will build muscle provided you eat enough to facilitate it. But, but basically your body has no choice, but to get stronger, to move that weight or, or that movement that you're doing that new variation of push up or whatever. And so what I would encourage people is not to get super hung up on, there's not a magic rep range. There's not a magic number. There's, there's some data that suggests that when you look at all studies, people that lifted 85% at this, you know, got a little bit better results. But what I normally recommend for people, if you are looking for efficiency, which if you, I'm sure a good number of your people are biohackers by nature and that kind of stuff, you want efficiency. If you do one set of a movement to muscular failure, 
you will provide adequate stimulus, provided that over time you still consider progressive overload. Because what happens is if you just go, man, I'm failing every day, I'm failing every day, that doesn't mean that that means that you recruited all the available muscle fibers. That's good. But if you don't get stronger over time, or if you're not getting extra reps or time under tension over time, you still won't adapt for for the long haul. Yep. But the reason I mentioned the one rep to failure thing is there's there's some research. Or one set to failure. Yeah. Well, sorry. One set to failure. There's some research that shows that I think they did six rep sets, and they took people who were just recreationally trained. So they were not serious. So these are people that just went to the gym sometimes. Sometimes they didn't. They weren't. You know, they weren't like long-term trainees. So more like your average person who is active. Yep. And what they did is they took them and they put Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, one set to failure of like five different movements. And they took a second group and the second group did three sets to failure of the same exact movements. And when they tested everybody out at the end of, if it was 12 or 16 weeks, whatever it, um, when they tested everybody out, there was zero difference in strength adaptation. There was no difference in hypertrophy. And so the key there is a lot of research that comes out in the, in the, I would say like the fitness space or whatever you want to call it. A lot of it is looking at athletes. And so you have normal people who see a study and they're like, oh, I got to do 45 sets a week. I mean, you don't need to do 45 sets a week. The guys in that study have been training for 10 years. And so the thing is your total volume is a driver of hypertrophy, but as long as you're still progressively overloading with whatever you're doing, yep. you're still going to stimulate hypertrophy. So if your goal is efficiency, you do, I don't care if you see bodybuilders in the gym for two hours a day or an hour and a half a day, you do not have to do that. Um, you, and, and there's not a, I don't know if somebody's done a meta analysis on this. So it would be, it'd be kind of cool. But if you look at the single set to failure and that methodology, and then you look at doing higher volume, a higher volume does generally stimulate hypertrophy to a greater degree, but at a much higher opportunity cost, you're, you're investing way more time. It takes more time, yeah. And so if I can get 90% of the gains in you know, one set versus doing three sets times five exercises, so I'm in and out in 20 minutes, and the other person's got to work out for an hour and 15, yep. I'm okay with the 90%. Yep. And so I think that an important you know, actionable thing is that if you're listening to this and you're not an advanced athlete, then doing single sets to failure is a really efficient way to train. Yep. And the, the other important part when you're talking about failure training is that the studies that show that athletes who train to failure got like way worse results, what most of them are is a poor design because they'll take for example, 45 total sets, which is like high volume. You're doing a lot of work and they'll take one group and none of the sets are to failure, but they did 45 sets. Then they take the failure group and they have them do 45 sets to failure. Well, if you're doing 45 sets to failure, you're going to destroy yourself because that you're basically, and the reason for that is that when you train a muscle, you're training the basically peripheral fatigue. You want to overreach. If you actually overreach, you injure yourself. right? Right. So you want to train the muscle very intensely, but you want, central fatigue. So central nervous system, your CNS, you don't want that to be stressed to the max. Think about being stressed with work. You're going through a divorce, all this, you know, you're not sleeping well. Anything you have going on like that reduces your capacity to train. So when you're going through stressful times in life, I highly suggest reducing your training volume. You don't have to not train because it's actually good. It's good for helping you deal with stress, but the, the less ideal your lifestyle is at the time for stress mitigation, the more you should look at your physical training and not overdo it because it increases central fatigue. And that's where in the studies that I've seen where 
it paints a negative light on training to failure, it's usually because there's too much volume being taken to failure. Fair enough. Yeah. So, and, I, and I think that underlines, again, I think one of the recurring themes now is that we should understand the strategies of why the mechanisms are, are working and why people have built protocols or prescriptions based on those strategies. Right. But don't forget and don't, but the problem is don't just take the protocol and say, oh, this study said 45 uh, reps or 45 sets, or this one says one rep or one set to failure. And I'm just going to do that without understanding why the strategy works, why the mechanism works. And I think that's where I think either experience or folks that with more, you know, consulting with folks with more experience, doing your own study is important. There are probably considerations or balances, right? Like I want to steel man why maybe people like to do on volume. Because maybe if you're doing one set to failure, you might be injury risking if you're doing something that's like a heavy squat to failure. Like that's- Oh, absolutely. As we age, or if you train alone, I train by myself at my house, right? So calisthenics, as you progress, it's very safe because the advanced movements that you would think, oh, well, that looks like I might hurt myself, you can't even get into the position until you've built a prerequisite strength and mobility yeah. from, from working yourself up to that yeah. point. So because you're not um, loading the spine with a heavy external load, and not that that's wrong, squatting's amazing. Um, a loaded squat's an awesome movement if you know how to do it properly. Yeah, I'm going to say, I, you probably do not want to ever have a failure of a heavy squat. No, not, <laughs> and, and same thing with a deadlift. A deadlift's a phenomenal movement. Yeah. Hip hinge, heavy deadlifts are great if you know how to do them properly. And and my only th fear or concern for like just average people is you think, man, I'm going to get in shape. I know deadlifts are everybody online is talking about, I got to do deadlifts. Um, if you don't know the proper movement pattern, you don't know how to do them well, you can hurt yourself and you can injure yourself where you're going to now have a chronic back issue for, for, you know, the rest of your life potentially. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously not everybody, but it, it is a possibility. And so what I would encourage people is like, if you're going to get into deadlifting or squatting or whatever, you definitely want to make sure whether you hire a knowledgeable individual or you find somebody online that's willing to critique your videos or whatever, um, you definitely, especially if you train by yourself, it's really crucial to make sure that you learn to do those things properly. Yep. Because while they're very, very good, efficient movements and they, they will benefit you, um, they're just something where if they're not done right, that's so, so I'm, I'm never gonna tell people like, oh, squatting or deadlifting is, is dangerous, but squatting or deadlifting improperly is dangerous. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned was experimenting with a carnivore diet. And I've done a couple, six, like six, eight week blocks of carnivore. It's been a recent popular topic on the program. It sounds pretty natural from all your diet experiments to just jump in and see what's going on. So can you talk about that? What, what did it look like? Your, your thoughts, experience from that? My initial impressions were, okay, like to not eat plants is crazy, right? Um, and then I, I saw more and more people doing it. And the reason that I was interested in it was I had autoimmune skin condition. Um, I had basically that spread from in between my fingers on my right hand up around my forehead. It had been progressing for like three and a half years, even having done keto, even being low carb, there was something that was causing an issue. And I know that, uh, you, you can have food sensitivities that can be triggers for autoimmune conditions. And so I, I suspected maybe this was it. And I'd already been removing foods. I tried autoimmune protocol, you know, keto and different stuff like that. Um, and, but I kept reading these testimonials and, you know, they're anecdote, but people that had autoimmune issues on a carnivore diet getting resolution or drastic improvements of symptoms. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, I don't know about this being healthy for long-term, you know, I just hadn't really looked into it, 
But at the same time, um, I figured that doing a controlled trial, controlled in time, I mean, so going like 30 days, 60 days, I don't care what you, you could eat Twinkies for 30 days. You're not going to cause permanent damage, you know? Probably not. Yeah, yeah. probably not, obviously. Um, You know, but so what I did is I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I started out and it was just water and beef and I got close to 30 days Within a couple of days, um, the itchiness and scaliness between my fingers already started to resolve. Um, within a couple of weeks, it was just pink. And then by three and a half weeks, it was gone. And I also had GERD for like 20 something years that would come and go. And it was completely gone. Or you know, I hate to use the term like it was healed, but it was in remission. So those issues were, were cleared up. And the thing is, I... I mean, I love steak. I love beef. I wasn't like I felt super um, deprived. I was excited to add in the rest of the animal foods, yep. which I did at about a month. And then I continued to eat like that for a month where I was eating, especially I, I think there's some some good benefits to like salmon and fatty fish and things like that. So I added that stuff in, went another month. And what surprised me the most from that two-month trial is that I didn't really miss plants. Um, I didn't have crazy cravings. I found the food to be... From an appetite, when you talk to satiety, from from there's appetite, which means oh I'm full, I don't want to eat anymore, but also there's a satisfaction in eating, and I was like, man, this is delicious. Like I I, I enjoy it, yeah. but I also am a bacon and eggs guy. I love steak. I like those foods. Yeah. So for some people that don't like that, you know, carnivore is probably not going to be sustainable for you because you just don't enjoy it. Yeah, you know what I mean. There's yeah. that's where I think there's individuality amongst people that you've got to think about your own if something's going to be sustainable for you. So try it out. Yeah, and then. Yeah that's, why I yeah, that's why I don't think it's an optimal human diet. Because it's like, is there optimal music? Like, like no, what is that, right? Well, it, it's it, like literally like, like we all have different, literally different preferences. Yeah, and that's one of the things I see people online that are like, well, beef and water, like that's what humans are supposed to eat. But there are, and I, I was surprised, but there are humans who are allergic to red meat. So how Yo, is no, carnivore I, diet? Yeah I, li- yeah, I have a good friend who's literally carnivore, but he's allergic to red meat. So he's like literally has to eat like pork products and other yeah, things. Yeah. And, so, and then you have like that tick that's spreading it as well. Yeah, that's, that, I think he got the yeah. meat allergy from that tick. And that, that might be a very rare occurrence, but the point still remains that people have migrated the world and developed and, and their biology is so complicated. I, I hate to think that there's one thing that's like ideal for everybody, you yeah. know? but, but in my case, um, I, I went six months of just basically all animal foods and found that I wasn't really missing plants. What I did start to miss is uh, I switched to doing almost all grass-fed beef. And primarily, I'm not an environmental expert, so I, I don't get into this or whatever, but I looked at it and I thought, okay, if regenerative farming and grass-fed more, more so, yeah, I think it is a little healthier, but also just the environmental impact. Yeah. So I decided I'm gonna go grass-fed as much as I can. And so I started eating more ground beef than I was before, and I started reducing the amount of steak I was eating. Yeah. And um, I- cost. Do, I do liver and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, what it is is that, yeah, because- I mean, grass-fed for sure just costs way more. Well, and I can, get, I can yeah. get organic grass-fed ground beef for like five bucks a pound yeah, yeah. on average, but then steak's 20 bucks a pound. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's, and I'm feeding kids and everything else. So I started doing ground beef. When it comes to ground beef, it's not the same thing, right? Yeah. Just eating a bowl of ground beef is not all that, honestly, for me. That. It, yeah, I, it's, yeah, it's like, ha- it's like a giant hamburger patty, guys. Like it's literally just like- <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'll grill like a half an onion and some garlic and then I'll throw like some chipotle adobo sauce, stir it up and it's delicious, right? I mean, I love it. I, I never get tired of it. So I just decided, okay, I don't really miss eating a bunch of vegetables. And I, I, I understand the whole hormesis theory. And the thing that I think you got to look at is um, because I drink coffee and there's actually research by uh, man, Guido Kramer, I think. 
I think his lab did it where they took coffee and they took mice and they gave coffee to one, one group of mice, water to the other. And what they found is coffee increased the time to autophagy and accelerated the results of fasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that mean it's going to do it in me? I don't know for sure, but right. it's interesting. Yeah, but it's interesting. And the way I look at it, it's like, I really enjoy coffee. So I'm going to drink coffee. Like, you might as well keep doing it. Yeah. And, and I think it's the whole risk reward thing is like, number one, I think that most of the data you look at on coffee would suggest it's not bad for you. Um, so it's like, I, I want to drink coffee. It, it enriches my life. I enjoy it. I'm going to do it. Right. And it's the same thing. I started adding some vegetables back in a small amount. I call them meat enhancers. And so, uh, like avocado, onions, garlic, some peppers. And, and when you look at, and did you have like autoimmune response to those or no, when I reintroduced them, I didn't, um, pe peanuts actually caused me to start itching like crazy. Um, I, I tried some peanut butter, yeah. um, but no, the few, the few plants that I have done, I've had no issues with, and I'm not, I'm not dogmatic where, you know, because sometimes people ask me, do you ever eat cheat meals? So I don't plan cheat meals. Cause I don't get all excited about like just plowing some crap, you know? Yeah. But my daughter likes to eat sushi. And so like for her birthday, we went to have sushi and we will split it. And so I, a couple times, like I'll take her and we'll go eat sushi. But I would say like, so the reason I call it carnivore ish, I don't really know. Cause people, I guess it kind of hints at how I eat now yeah. would be like majority of my calories are coming from animal foods. And then I use plant foods to enhance the enjoyment of my animal foods, yeah. basically. Fascinating. I mean, I think my perspective, one of the observations I keep seeing with carnivore is that there's definitely some interesting signal around autoimmunity issues, right? Like yeah. you, you talk to someone like Michaela Peterson, like some people think she's like lying or like BSing. No, I, I think she generally has like severe autoimmune issues that gets triggered and she's very sensitive to plant foods or plant yeah. matter. And it sounds like there's a, a number of people that have, I don't think are extreme as Michaela, but like someone like, like even yourself, like some mild psoriasis on your skin itchiness from something, right? And there, right. like there's clearly some signal data, N equals one data point that when you went to carnivore, that went away. It's like, and I think that's literally probably thousands of anecdotes. Where I find it interesting is that do we see an uptick in autoimmunity issues? Which is why it's interesting. Cause it, cause I think for me, like I don't believe I have autoimmunity or issues with plant matter. You know, when I'm on a keto or a keto diet, a normal diet, a carnivore diet, I generally feel decently good on all of them. Obviously if I have a super heavy carb meal, that's like when I'll kind of not appreciate like the kind of the standard American diet, but you know, I, I'm not like getting rashes if I eat like a, like a plant thing. That's like, you know, an, or like a vegan cookie or something. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But there are some people who are so sensitive. They're either always lying all the time, but for what? Like, what? Exactly. So like, that's where I, I think there's some interesting signal there. I think my perspective on it is like, it's like a, Elimination diet, which probably is seems to be nutritionally complete, given that there are like tremendous, again, N equals one, but I don't see why they would be lying that these people are living reasonably healthy with reasonable blood markers for like three, five, 10 years. Right. So it's like, okay, like people can definitely do this. It's an elimination diet that probably makes sense in terms of resolving a lot of autoimmunity issues. And, and and then like backtracking from there, can you rebuild either to preference by adding other vegetables or other things to make what you think is an optimal diet? A huge kind of worms around like the debate around our humans facultative carnivores, meaning, um, you know, animal foods are the primary food, but 
you can also eat vegetables and, and whatnot as kind of survival or secondary foods right. or are they like medicines or are they just in, like flavor enhancers and you know i think that's an interesting hypothesis to, to to discuss and explore further yeah and i think when you look at um you know the when the megafauna were still here yeah. when you had these slow lumbering uh mammals that were easy to kill yeah. that humans appear to have preferred them to the point where they were eating sometimes past hyper carnivore where they were eating you know 80 90 percent of their calories may have been coming from animals yeah. um and so it, you, you could make the argument that had they not become insufficient to feed us had they, you know they, they either went extinct or were close to extinct um i think you could basically say hey we may have gone all the way to eventually becoming carnivores yeah. But obviously, we've all, including the far northern latitudes, there was always some plant matter, yeah. some plant foods in their diet. So, yeah. Yeah, that's where I feel like carnivores go a little bit too far. It's like, you know, just as there is clear historical record that we've eaten animals through our evolutionary history, there's also a lot of evidence where we've eaten plant foods through our evolutionary history to say, like, it's clearly wrong to say that humans are vegans. Like, right. that's wrong. I know that PETA has a little, yeah, yeah, little it's, propaganda piece there. And then, like, okay, were humans, like, literally carnivores? Like, uh, probably not. Like, literally every single culture has has plant foods as right. part and of their it, culture. The thing that I think is, is really interesting, though, is um, so you have basically plant foods being consumed in hunter-gatherer societies. Even, even the ones that are very high in animal food yep. consumption still have some plant foods. But – the modern, but they know how to prepare. They're not eating a bunch of raw plants. They're generally cooking, preparing, like wisdom of the ages, you want to call it, whatever you want to call it. They, they're even eating poisonous cassava. They're using these things that normally are not even edible, but they know to prepare them a certain way. And so the thing that I think really stood out to me when I went carnivore and my, my skin cleared up is we have this notion as a society that if it grows from the ground, you can eat it and it's good for you. Right. Never mind the fact that tons of plants are poisonous and yeah. toxic to humans and all that. But people look at the grocery store and there's vegetables from all over the world. And the, the common thought is, man, I'm going to eat all those and those are good for me. And so I think that I look at it and I think, man, from, from more of a nuanced perspective, there probably is a lot of these plants that certain individuals, maybe your evolutionary tree didn't doesn't match with that the way people have lactose intolerance from certain cultures and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that it's like if you if you're if your ancestors never ate a banana or, or whatnot it's like okay that's a pretty novel component now they're introducing and when you mention the banana there's a man i gotta remember the guy's name but there, there's a lab that they took um fruit flies and they took fruit flies that were eating oranges as like their native diet and they'd never had bananas and so he introduced them to bananas and what happened is they were not adapted to bananas. They did not thrive. Their lifespan actually decreased and all this stuff. But they they repopulate very quickly, right? So generation after generation, they evolved, to, they evolved to be able to eat the banana. But what's interesting is they did that until about midlife. And after midlife, their ability to eat the banana started to decrease again. Fascinating. And when you put them back on oranges after midlife, they thrived on oranges. And so his hypothesis with it is, and, and his data suggests this, that when we're young, we have evolved to eat some more stability. Yeah, more of a flexibility because evolutionary pressure. They want you need to be able to reproduce. So yeah, maybe you don't have as good of, of metabolic fuel. Maybe there's only crap food available, and so that's why I think it's. When I heard that study, and I know we need a lot more research, but when I was young, I could eat 
the worst stuff and it didn't seem to really affect me. And now it's like destroys me, you know? Yeah. And I see these younger trainers and younger people that are especially into the bodybuilding and the health fitness space. And it's like, well, you can eat pop tarts and all this donuts, just track the calories. And I'm like, dude, as in, well, now that I'm older, if I eat that stuff, like I, I feel like trash yeah. and it's not, yeah. Even if it fits my calories, I just feel like garbage yeah. and it's not psychological, you know? Um, and so I, when I saw that research, I think we obviously need a lot more, but that was really fascinating to me that we evolved, not we, the flies evolved to where they could have metabolic flexibility and eat this new diet. That would be like our, after the Neolithic revolution, it would be like mimicking that. So yeah. eating grains and everything. So it's like, yeah, this younger people can eat this. But after midlife, that started to they started to lose that protection from eating like that. A paleolithic style diet, eating things that we have been eating for a very long time, whether they're plants or whether they're animal-based foods or whatever, I think that's the low-hanging fruit for most people is get the crap out of your diet if it's in there. Yeah, I think that's a, like a, a very strong working model. We'll have to leave it at that. So Jerry, where do people find you? What are the shout outs? I just use my name on Twitter. And on YouTube, it's just uh, J-E-R-R-Y. And then the last name is T-E-I-X-E-I-R-A. And so um, in hindsight, my last name's not easy, so I probably should show something else. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm most active on Twitter, and I find that is just a better medium for people who actually want to engage and learn from each other because it's written word versus just pictures, right? And uh, so on Instagram, I'm not as active on there but I will post snapshots of my own personal training on there, kind of like a training log of the skills I'm working on. Um, but everything, if you want to learn how to efficiently and effectively build strength and hypertrophy with just with body weight training at home, then you can just go to the YouTube channel and the first video when you get there explains how to navigate the channel. And there's complete workouts from beginner on up that you can just click on that. Everything's organized by playlist. So if you just click playlist, it'll have everything um, organized out for you. It's really simple. I've tuned in. It's good stuff. Go check it out, guys. All right, Jerry. Awesome conversation. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.